This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Dawn of the Islamic Literalism, Rise of the Crescent Moon, and the author, Joseph A. Buta Jr., and Joseph joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joseph. Hi, sir. How you doing? Well, great to have you with us, and uh, great to have people like you who teach us about history to really understand reality. And, of course, so many don't understand the Quran. Uh, I think today, more than ever, we're learning more this or that through the news, but, of course, we don't learn very much from, uh, the, uh, from a historical point of view. You say this about your book, Want to know what an Islamic literalist really believes and how you can come to understand their motivations to help defend against this ideology? The dawn of Islamic literalism provides all of this and more. Uh, you know, a lot of books give facts, but you're trying to tell the whole story, uh, put it into context uh, from authoritative Islamic sources. Why all the focus, Joseph? Well, I, I think really I, I became motivated going into, um, it really started probably with the Khomeini back in 79. I really didn't understand what was happening in Iran. So I was just a bystander in watching that. And then there was a lot of religious decrees. And, of course, growing up in a, in a, a Christian home, I really didn't understand how religious people could really speak this kind of vitriol. I, I didn't understand it at all. So it really came down to going through the 80s and then to the early 90s when I said, well, you know what, There's, I hear people talking about this faith. And I was always interested in religion and I was interested in history. But I didn't understand how you could have a faith and there was so much violence attached to it, or people were doing violent things in the name of this faith. So in my mind, I decided there had to be more. So it was really back in the early 90s is when I started this search to start to become familiar with the Quran. And then, uh, of course, in doing that, I found that there were other authoritative sources that I also had to become familiar with. We all know... Muslims in our communities, they're peaceful people, they're trying to raise families, you know, work and enjoy life. It's hard to imagine that uh, their so-called Bible, the Quran, could teach such violence and could teach such world domination. I don't think most people can relate at all to the real, the real truth. No, I think you make a very good point there, and and another motivation, as you bring it up, was when when people would quote these these more violent passages. Uh, usually, the response from the Islamic authority was, "Well, you're taking it out of context." Yes. So every time a violent uh, 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 citation was mentioned, it was always the same response: "You're taking it out of context." So I thought to myself, "Well, okay, well, let's take it on face value." How about if we get the entire context and find out what it is and lay it all out in, in, in a format, like a, a great epic, a saga, and then those violent passages will be in there, but also the rest of the storyline, so therefore that argument wouldn't really fly anymore. So therefore, hey, then we'll have those violent passages in their context. So that's what really started me on the, on the trek to writing this book. So you take us back, right, to the 6th and 7th centuries. That's correct. 
And who was Muhammad? Well, Muhammad was, uh, he, he, came, he came from the Quraysh tribe uh, in Mecca. Um, his tribe, the Quraysh, were the ones that were really in control of what then was considered uh, the Kaaba, which was a place of, of worship for Arabs who were polytheistic, but, uh, but also a place of great commerce in, in Arabia. It was like a crossroads, uh, um, not that far from the Red Sea. So, unfortunately for him, he was like in, in, in the lower social strata of his tribe. His father had died. He never knew him. Uh, his mother died when he was six. He wasn't really raised much with her. He was raised with uh, some, almost we would say, almost like a wet nurse. It was Bedouin women would raise him. So, through the Quran and through his life, often he's referring to himself as the orphan. Because why didn't other people take care of me? You know, he, he was on the bottom social strata, and um, and I think that really bothered him, and um, and it reflected in some of the Quranic quotations that wind up coming down against those who he considered to be persecuting him. So, how did he write the Quran? What what was uh, what does he claim? Well, according to Islamic sources. Um, Muhammad in the year 610, he was born in 570, so when he was 40, uh, he was practicing a rite that was actually a rite that was, it was a pagan rite. And part of the pagan rite was for about a month of a year, you would go into these caves and you would meditate. Well, uh, in, in the year uh, 610, he was in the cave, and uh, according to his own recollection, as it comes through the Quran, is that a spirit being told him to recite. And uh, the encounter wasn't, uh, wasn't very good. It, it scared him. Matter of fact, on a couple of occasions, he even co- contemplated suicide. So it was very frightful for him. So eventually what happened, as these things happen, is that when the spirit being eventually being identified as Jabriya or Gabriel would come to him, he would go into trances. And this is how the Arabs of the day could discern whether revelation was coming or Muhammad was talking of himself, is that when he would go into a trance and speak, there could be some scribe nearby or people remembering what was coming out of Muhammad's mouth. So, oh, this is, this is the revelation coming from Allah through Gabriel into Muhammad when he would go into a trance. When he was just speaking regularly, acting regularly, well, this was part of his sunnah, this was part of his traditions and what he was speaking about. So it, it depended upon whether he was in a trance or wasn't in a trance, whether it was, it was revelation or part of his tradition. How did he become so acclaimed as this perfect man, as this leader of the faith? Uh, you know, how did, the, how did all this become so prominent amongst those who, I guess, were looking for a great leader, uh, he was more of a, uh, an aggressor, wasn't he? I mean, he was a leader of uh, aggression. Well, for, I would say you, you have to break the, the whole period into two sections. Uh, uh, the first period known as Mecca or Mechania, which was really from 610, the point of his initial revelation, until 622, which was the point when him and his Muslim followers left Mecca for Yathrib, which was, uh, became known as Medina. So the first 12 years, one of the first 12 years, his whole uh, meaning was he, he was, okay, well, instead of all these 360 gods at the Kaaba, the one god at the Kaaba known as Allah, uh, this is the main god, because that's how this god had identified himself through Gabriel to him. So in part of uh, picking out the one main god, Allah, he was also deriding the other gods, and this offended his relatives. I mean, he was part of the same clan, tribe, 
in Mecca at that time. So a lot of the, the, the animosity stirs up by him really dissing the other uh, gods of, of his relatives. So for the first 12 years, by the time the Hijra occurs, he's got probably about 50 followers, maybe no more than that. So for 12 years of preaching and trying to talk to them, uh, he doesn't have really many followers. The followers really occur after he goes to Yathrib, and then he's really angry with his relatives for forcing him to leave. And then, of course, what he starts to do is, well, the one way to get back with them is they were wealthy, so attach, uh, to attack them in their wealth. Hence, when I talked to you before about him being the orphan and them being more well-to-do. So him and his followers, who are now living in Mecca, would start to raid their caravans and s- start to despoil their wealth. And, of course, as he did this, he took a foot for himself, but he shared the other loot with everybody else. And as more people came into that, he tried to show them how they would benefit through these expeditions. So your book also, besides laying the groundwork, the foundation, the context of this, of the, the whole start of this religion through Muhammad and, of course, the Koran, you also you place the Koran in chronological order. Now, what do you mean by that? When the Koran was compiled, um, I'll take the Islamic point of view. The Muslim point of view is it was compiled no more than 19 years after Muhammad's death. So if he died in 632, this brings us around 651. The third caliph, known as Uthman, uh, got different codices. There was different versions of the Quran. Uh, he eliminated about four different ones, and he picked the Medina Codex as the Quran. Well, when he put it together, when he had all these, all these different uh, uh, chapters, he decided to put them in order from uh, the largest in the front to the smallest in the back. Well, when he did that, it took it out of any sense of chronology. So, uh, for instance, when you started Chapter 1, Chapter 2, actually Chapter 2 in the Quran wasn't revealed until 6, 623. Well, that's a problem since the whole revelation started in 610. So what I did is I went back through the Islamic authoritative sources and I examined and put it all in a chronological order, the best that I could determine. So really, the Quran, instead of starting with chapter 1, it actually starts with chapter 96, and that's how the book starts. So you'll see all these different numbers, but I, I put it all in chronological order so that you can better tell the story and understand what was happening when these uh, revelations were revealed. So as we study your book and we start to see all this in perspective, we then can begin to understand what's going on and everything we see in the news today. I mean, it starts to make sense. I think once this book is read, and from my, from my point of view, I think it would, it's one of the more important books to read. And of course, I'm, I tip my own horn, yes, but I, I would say this. It, it's important because when you read this and you understand that a lot of terrorism in the world wouldn't occur if this material didn't exist. But it's not just the existence of this material. It's then those who read it and believe it to be absolutely true. Hence the literalist interpretation, where the literalists not only read it and say it's true, but then say, not only am I going to read it, but I'm going to apply it. And that's the difference between the fundamentalists and the literalists. The fundamentalists will read it and say it's true, but the literalist wants to apply it. And that's what we see going on today. How many Muslims are there in the world today? What, what is that? Uh, upwards of now 1.6 billion. 1.6 billion. So if only, what, what percentage would you say that are the literalists? 
uh, according to the sources I've been able to investigate, we're looking at anywhere from 10 to 15 percent. So to put it in perspective, at a 1.6 billion, we're, we're looking at basically the population of the United States, about 300 and some million that really buy into this ideology. So buy into jihad. Y- yes. Buy into the overthrow of all governments and world domination, everyone either becoming Muslim or, I guess, has to be eliminated if you don't become a Muslim. Isn't that exactly what the Koran advocates? Well, actually, actually, no. It's a little bit different. What, okay. what, the, what the Quran advocates is the implementation of Islamic law. Um, the, the Muslims can tolerate Christians and Jews, but they tolerate them in what they call a zini, zini status, a second-class status, because... It, in the Christians and Jews who now come under Islamic authority, they can overtax them and help pay for things in the Islamic community. So a lot of parts of Islam's expansion, which will come out in my, my, my following book, was overtaxation of the people they conquered to continue to pay for the jihad. In a way, we do it today with our oil money going to the Middle East, where well, that's what finances the jihad. If you look at it, before oil was found in the Middle East, well, when the Ottomans were defeated, uh, it, it was over. So there's, there's always this need for doing that. So they will tolerate Christians and Jews in a deemed second-class citizenship where they can overtax them. So this is okay. But what they're insisting on, this is all about the implementation of Islamic law, and that is Sharia. So th- th- that's the main source, because once that happens, and demitude and all the other concepts are discussed in my book, then they all come into play. And Sharia law is in direct conflict with Western thought. Absolutely. It's, it's 180 degrees from any kind of uh, American constitutional application, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights. People will make all the arguments they want to. Uh, but I can assure you, when George Washington and Adams and Jefferson got together, uh, the Quran and any kind of uh, authentic Islamic sources had nothing to do with putting those documents together. And of course, uh, as we hear the treatment, the mistreatment, the the overwhelming uh, atrocities even against women uh, is obviously just in direct violation of everything we believe in Western thought, especially as Christians. Uh, I, absolutely, that's true. I mean, there's, there's a whole form of the international uh, forum on human rights that comes out of the United Nations, and Sharia is very uh, very focused on the, how this is to occur. Uh, actually, since Surah 4, you don't have to go too far in the Quran to get to Surah 4, which really deals with women, and uh, some of the treatment of women is um, it's really eye-opening to Westerners. I tell a lot of folks uh, that uh, when you look into this, the one thing that misses in all these rules and regulations, especially when it comes down to women, is uh, there's no love. Uh, Love is absent. The word love is never used. And, of course, when it comes to women, women have to be loved. And I'm not talking in a physical sense. I'm talking about they're the mothers of children, and you treat them a certain way. They're not just a possession or a property. And and is Allah a, a God of love? Allah has 99 names. There's different, 99 different attributes that are associated with the Islamic deity, Allah, and love is not one of those. It sounds like a, a, a god of war. A, a god of power. Power, okay. A power. In, in Christianity, there is a whole sense through Jesus of self-sacrifice, and then when you seem like you're defeated, you rise to great things. When, when, when the crucifixion happened, it should have been the end of it, but then it took off. 
Right. Islam is not formed that way. Islam is formed with, we have decrees, and then we will conquer you, which proves again that Allah is with us, because as we conquer, this proves again that our God is with us. So what keeps us going, even though Islam has had a series of setbacks, the Quran and the authoritative sources are still assuring them that you're being tested, but victory will come. We've been listening to Joseph A. Buta Jr. He is the author of his book, Dawn of Islamic Literalism, Rise of the Crescent Moon. Joseph, tell us how to get your book. Right now, my book, you can, you can get it through uh, on the web. You get it through Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, or if anybody wants to visit my website, which is uh, uh, joebuddha.wordpress, you all you have to do is uh, click on the icon, and it will take you right to the publisher, author house, and you can buy it right from the publisher. And Buta spelled B-U-T-T-A. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Uh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Tugginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Occasions of Sin, a theological crime novel, and the author is John Martin Gale, and John joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, John. Hello, Steve. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, this is quite a novel with a lot of twists and turns. Of This interesting title, uh, of course, Occasions of Sin, but then you throw in a theological crime novel. Now, tell us about the title and in this, in this connection with theology. Okay, well, Occasions of Sin is a kind of term of art in, um, in 
Catholic theology, uh, and it means that uh, it means to identify places or persons who are not sins of themselves, but are temptations. They lead you into sin. So people can be sins, uh, occasions of sin. Uh, places can be uh, occasions of sin. And uh, the one of the epigrams I put on the book was, um, you know, I have it here, so let me read it. Um, it's it, it's from Saint Teresa of Avila, who was a, 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 an important um, Spanish monast. What's what's the word? Abbess of a monastery, and she says, "It is here, my daughters, that love is to be found, not hidden away in corners, but in the midst of occasions of sin." And believe me, although we may often fail and commit small lapses our gain will be incomparably the greater. In other words, virtue, if you can call it virtue, and I guess you can, is, uh, is to be found in the, in the hurly-burly of life. You've you got to get in and mess with real life. And uh, this is sometimes messy. That's what you do with messes. And your book, your book is messy. It is. It's very messy. And it's it's a little convoluted. It spins back on itself. It has lots of murders, drugs, importing of drugs, smuggling of drugs, corruption in police departments, and um, there's a lot of mess out there. And, and getting through the mess, there's, there's opportunities for courage, for valor, um, for uh, being a good person and a heroic person. And Sergeant Marino is such a person. Um, there are four main characters. I won't give you the details of them, uh, but I'll give you a little bit of the details of one of them besides Sergeant Marino. Sergeant Marino uh, is a Puerto Rican girl. She's 30 years old, almost 30 years old. And she's um, she was born in... Puerto Rico and raised there for a few years, and then her mother brought her to the Bronx in New York City, and that's a rough area. And um, she joined the New York Police Department after, you know, after high school. Worked as a, as a functioning New York cop, which is which can be pretty rough. Incidentally, my older brother, who's no longer with us, is. Um, was a, was a cop in New York, was a homicide detective and a cop. He inspired some parts of the book. I'll interrupt myself to say that my other brother, older brother also, well old, older than I, was a seminarian for a brief period of time, a couple of years. He also inspired parts of the book because this, this co-hero, um, Eric, the former priest, who was really forced out of the priesthood, but he's still a practicing Catholic, but no longer a priest. He's modeled um, partly on my other brother. Eric, the uh, former Catholic priest, is a real ally to this Sergeant Detective Marino? Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out to... Um, it turns out to be a romantic interest of 
serious dimension with Sergeant Marino. Without tipping off how the book is going to end, I'll suggest that there is a strong romantic interest between the, those two. So they get involved, um, two things. One is a, a clash with the corrupt police chief who runs um, the police department in the town she's in, which is called Wisdom, Georgia, in the county of Wisdom, Georgia. They also learn about a plot that uh, this corrupt police chief is trying to put together to import drugs from Colombia, South America, into um, southeastern United States. And um, so a couple of little clans form. He's got his own little corrupt group. There's already a, a corrupt group in Colombia. And then we'll call them our crime fighters, which sounds like a comic, comic book characters, but they're not comic book characters. But I love to think of them that way because uh, there's just that touch of the air of a comic book in, in the writing, which I should mention, by the way, is, is somewhat comic. It's, I, I, don't, I don't like to call this a comic novel, but I'll admit that that's how I think of it. It's fun, very funny in, in many places. But I'm one of, you know, I, I think of it as a very funny, serious, very funny and very serious novel. So it is a theological novel, and it, 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 it deals with questions like evil. How can evil exist in the world if, if God is good? If there is a God and if he's good, uh, so I call him a he, let's call him a he. If he's good, if he's so good and so powerful, how, how can he allow evil to exist? It's a classic philosophical problem right. or theological problem. Right. So they confront that general problem, and they get they get attacked by um, first this this group of uh, fearless uh, heroes get attacked first by the corrupt police chief and his allies, and then they get attacked by um, the South American um, gangsters, is what they are part of organized crime in Colombia. Well, the sergeant detective, she's got two other very close allies, two uh, ladies in her life, two f- women, two friends. Right. They, um, they, they, they all just happened upon each other in a very short period of time. One of them is a, um, is a woman um, who um, is the medical examiner for um, the county. Uh, and then the fourth, fourth character on this team is uh, a young English girl from uh, Manchester, England, uh, who um, is only 20 years old. And she's come over for um, to the United States for, for essentially an internship in, in writing. So she has a job writing on a local newspaper writing this and that and just getting experience. And she uh, 
strongly admires Sergeant Marina, Marino, who is, um, who is called throughout the book Margarita, by the way. And uh, they become fast friends, and they, they even live together. So they're crime fighters. All four of them join in uh, a team of, of uh, allies who are essentially crime fighters, just like the old uh, Batman Robin, Dick Tracy, all those comic book characters. And I think of it somewhat as a comic book. It's, it's, um, it's meant to be over the top in various places. Mm-hmm. So you take it to the extremes. Yeah, and I think, I think that's fun. That's part of the, right. part of the reason it's a fun novel. Well, and obviously they're going to be in very dangerous situations all, you know, in trying to confront all this evil. Absolutely. And there, there's a lot of, lot of blood spilled. Um, particularly, I'm happy to say, by the bad guys. Um, the good guys prevail, as one might expect, and uh, they spill a lot of bad guy blood. I think it would make a good movie, by the way, but uh, no reason to hope for that. Well, you never know, that's for sure. You've done the first part. You've written the book, and you, you had a lot of inspiration from uh, reading... Uh, English Catholic novelist, some of you may have heard of Graham Greene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's um, an important figure in, in uh, English literature, and he's, uh, he's um, been the source of, of uh, movies like The Quiet American or Our Man in Havana, um, and uh, probably seven or eight movies beyond those. And he, he, he was, um, well respected. He was, he never did get the Nobel Prize, but he was usually, um, nominated for it. And, uh, he was, he was in the great, he was in the Ernest Hemingway tradition of going to war, war zones and sitting in the midst of battles. And I think he was a very, very fine writer. So he's, so he had an influence on your writing. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I, I have a lot of influences, and he's certainly one of them. Um, so it's a fast-moving page-turner? Yeah, I would think so. It wasn't, it wasn't a page-turner to write, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a challenge to write, as everyone knows firsthand who are authors. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I think it's a really good book, um, a good read, and a, um, a very provocative read. I mean, it's, it's, it's something to chew on intellectually. It's, um, it's easy to read, but something that requires some attention, some thought, because of the themes. Um, one of them is a, is a, I think I mentioned before, maybe before we started talking about the book itself, is about one of the themes is, is the problem of evil. How can there be a good God if uh, so many so much evil happens in the world? Right, that's a big question in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, and it's, it's, it doesn't go away. It's not going to be solved. But uh, it's always going to be explored, and, and I'll, I'll make my own little contribution by exploring it in this book. So I think uh, 
you know, that's about it. That's, okay. that's the book. Well, I appreciate you sharing about your book titled Occasions of Sin, a theological crime novel, and we've been listening to John Martin Gale. John, tell us how to get your book. Um, probably the simplest way would be to go to Amazon.com um, and um, just order it through that. It's pretty simple to do that. Well, thank you. You can go through a bookstore and do the same thing. Exactly. But, yeah, you can order it in any online bookstore or walk in off the street. Or walk in, but, right. they'll, but they'll have to order it. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. To the contrary, thank you, Steve. You did this. You asked some awful good questions, and I appreciate your time. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Oh Brother, Why? And the author is Michael Thoreau, and Michael joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Michael. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Let me read a little introduction about your book for everyone. You say this, the story of a retired soldier how he was sent to discourage his long-lost brother from committing acts of violence against his country, his country being America. His brother had proclaimed himself king and had recruited 12 men with the same displeasure to the U.S. as his disciples to disrupt the daily lives of the Brits and allies. So this book, there's some fiction in it, but it's based on facts. It's about 90% true, you say. 
is. Well, before we get into the details of what all this means, oh, brother, why? Uh, we'll find out why you said that and uh, what your brother was, uh, all the details of what your brother was into. Uh, tell us about yourself, Michael, a little bit about your background in the military and uh, why you wrote the book. Yes, well, my original name is Melchiedes Joyo, J-O-Y-E-U-X. When I spoke to the publishers, they could not say, pronounce the Melchiedes, <laughs> so, I, so I had to stop them and say, okay, just say Michael. And I remember many years ago when I came to the States, I read a book about uh, a poet called Henry Thoreau, mm-hmm. and I figured, well, since they could not pronounce my last name either, Joyo, they kept telling me <laughs> Joyex. So I said, just say Thoreau, because it sounds like Joyo, so that made it easier. But my whole my name is Melchiedes Joyo, and I say if they call it if they say Michael Thoreau, that would resemble me. But even growing up, my brother used to call me Little Mike, and that's how the Michael stayed as Michael Thoreau. And you have quite a background in the military. Yes, I, I spent 24 years as an army medic. Traveled all over the world. Yes, I did. I was a linguist originally. Well, I was a medic, but being a linguist, I ended up being selected to travel around the world with congressmen and other people around, you know, through the different areas, translating and all in their meetings and everything. You grew up in a large family, seven children, and somewhere along the line, you got separated from your brother. Yes, we did. How did that happen? Um, well, we, at the, at the age of 14, 14 15, we, we took the exam for college and made it through. And I went to Versailles, and he stayed in Marseille going to college, and Somehow we separated from there and ended up in England together, where he went to Liverpool and I ended up in Birmingham. I did a language and he did engineering. And he actually came to my wedding and everything, became my daughter's godfather. And, you know, it didn't take long. And after a couple of weeks, that young man just disappeared. I met him later in Nigeria. And he introduced me to a, a good friend of his, he said, was his roommate. But this person was going to medical school, was a medical intern. And he told me that he had changed his religion to a Muslim because he wanted to become a Muslim. And I think he had this, this he had influence from the same guy, that same doctor, who later became Andrew. And I think that's the way his whole story started. His whole becoming king, King Makinami started. So he became a Muslim and in the process uh, fell into, uh, under the influence of some different people, which eventually led him to become an enemy of, of the United States? Yes, I think so, because, well, I don't know, as in the book he mentioned, you know, his mom, his mom really died from, an American, an, a drunken American that tourist that ran over the mother and his sister in Marseille. And the mother died, but then the father, who was the wrangler on our farm, 
went to visit his brother in Lebanon so they could go to the Me to Mecca for for Ramadan and as you know Lebanon close to Israel these people they attacked a Jewish outpost and Israel dropped a bomb and somehow both the father and his and his brother died so this young man I guess grew up with the hatred for mm -hmm. Israel America and everything right even though we went to church, we went to school, Catholic boys' school and church. We did our first communion, confirmation, and everything. I guess deep down, he still wanted to, you know, pursue the that bad, that ill feeling towards America and the Allies. And so, I think that's how, that's how he surfaced in England. So how did it come about that you uh, were given an assignment to find your brother, but you didn't even know it was your brother at the time. Well, the same thing. They they called me. They called me home to. Well, the people came for me. I don't know if you read part of the book where the FBI or CIA guys showed up at my home and took me to the Air Force base, and I ended up in North Carolina when I couldn't answer the questions because they kept asking me about. King, King Mackey, and I keep saying I didn't know who King Mackey was, but I guess they were determined that I knew the person, and I ended up in North Carolina in a conference room looking at the faces of these other people in another conference room, and they showed me the picture of that young man, and that's how I realized, hey, they were talking about my brother, not just somebody I went to school with. So they had no idea this was your brother? They had no idea. All they thought, all they knew was I went to school with that person. But when they showed me the picture, that was that turned out to be my brother. And why were they trying to find him? Well, because they ha they really had nothing on him. Only they knew that he had eight people in London. He had eight men with him in London, and they were considered dangerous. And I guess they had they knew of plans, or whatever he had. So he had he was associating with people who were wanted by the FBI. Yes. And according to them, they had nothing on him, not even a traffic ticket, but they just knew he had, he had bad people with him. So, And they wanted me to either talk to him or find out. When they found out he was my brother, then they wanted me to go talk to him. So I had to go to London and introduce myself to them, where we spent time together and everything. You're a patriotic retired soldier. I would say so, yeah. I spent 24 years doing the same thing because I went to desert. You were, actually, you, were involved in, in, you were involved in a, a desert storm? Yes, I was. I actually got injured in desert storm and was shipped back home for surgery. And you have uh, classified, uh, you're cleared for classified information, which... Of course, you can't go into any details. Yes, I am. I was at the time because, as I said, I traveled a lot with, even while in the Army, I traveled with generals to, you know, NATO briefings and other areas and military outings. Plus, I traveled with congressmen around the world, even vice presidents. So, yes, I would say I had. I had access to a good many of these people, congressmen and senators and all. So when you first realized that this was your brother, you, you had been separated for how long? 30 
30 years, didn't have a clue of what he was up to. No, I tried to find him. Actually, I wrote many letters and trying to find him through his last address, and I never found him. He told me he got the letters, but only he could not write back. He was, I guess, too busy in either making money or making more friends or building his group. And then he told me all the things they did to make money. And So this is all detailed in your book? Yes, it is. You say something about what you did that was necessary to prevent another 9-11. Was this all part of the quest to find your brother? Yes, it is, because that was, I think that was his plan. He wanted me to come back to the States to join his group, come back to the States and take pictures of basketball games and football games on weekends. And then he would send his friends so they would, you know, then they could really organize for planting bombs and things like that. Yeah, I'm surprised somebody hasn't tried to do that since 9-11. It seems like where there's so many people together, what an awful, uh, obviously, tragedy that would be. But uh, Yes, it would be, but that was his, that was his yeah, plan, that was his yeah, idea. Right, it doesn't surprise me that somebody would be thinking about that. So you're, so, without giving away everything about the story, uh, what else can you tell us? Well, he had, as I mentioned, he had plans because they had plans on blowing up part of the Waterloo train station and they had actually set up the bombs and things like that. But I saw, I saw the markings on the, on the computer that one of his men had in, the, in his office in the hotel room and told the people in London about it. And they, they took everything but left, the em- left empty boxes to show that it was still there in case they came back. And... They had the, they had eight young men in a truck with the picture of um, what's his name Bin Laden, so they would blame it all on Al Qaeda and all these things. Mm-hmm. And well, I was able to set that up so they would clear the boys and you know took the took the van away. But then the police end up catching up with them on the way to the high, to the airport, on the highway to the airport, and shot it out with them. So, And he and show, he also showed you a bunch of money that you could make if you get involved with them, huh? Oh, yes. When he opened that safe, man, my eyes just bubbled up. How much money do you think was in the safe? According to the guys, he had $58 million. $58 million American dollars plus a couple more millions in British pounds liras, French money, and everything else. So all told, I think he had about $65 million worth in that safe. Well, these kinds of stories seem to be right out of the movies, but reality is always better than fiction. Oh, yeah, definitely. We've been talking to Michael Thoreau, his book, Oh Brother, Why? Michael, tell us how to get your book. Well, it is on Amazon.com plus OfferHouse.com, and you can also find it on Barnes & Noble, and there, there are some in a local bookstore right here in my city of Lawton, Oklahoma. Well, we appreciate you being with us on Author Talk, Michael. And I thank you very much, sir. Thanks very much for the interview.